Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. I'm happy to have Tim Russell back. Tim is a professional forester, and he's been a friend of mine. Really did a great podcast last time, and I'm really happy he's continuing to contribute to this thing. He's he's really been a, a, a resource for me and a resource for a lot of people. His company, Greenfire Forestry, serves uh, most of New York State. He travels. He helps clients all over the place. You know, and, and provides really good prescriptions for them. And, and today, the topic we want to get into is developing really kind of a, a more in-depth look at the progression of our forest and where our forest stands today and, and how to improve it for deer. And he's really kind of gone along the lines of kind of detailing out, like, how he evaluates things and really comes up with, you know, this meeting of the minds between his clients developing a prescription, and then actually in the field making changes to get a point across or to get them to the goal line of meeting their objectives and ultimate goals. So, Tim, welcome on the podcast. Happy to have you here. Thanks uh, thanks for coming back. How you been? I'm all right. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me on again, John. Been walking the woods and working on a few different projects, seeing some of them come to fruition. Now, you sent me a cool picture today. Uh, we were chatting back and forth today, and you sent me a, a tree that looks like it had fallen over. What do you think the forensic had? What do you think happened to that tree specifically? Yeah, so for folks listening, it was kind of funny because there was this large tree bent over in an arch to form like a perfect roof, and I saw it from far away, and I said, there's going to be a deer bed under that tree. And sure enough, there was. And so it was a, a tree that maybe when it was younger got scarred badly on one side and probably got clobbered by another tree when that happened. And so it bent and arched, but it didn't quite die. So it continued to grow and it made a very, um, you know, flat roof surface and a perfect arch shape. And it was like, you know, snow all around and then just a little spot of dryness just the size for a deer and sure enough you could tell a deer had spent the night there <laughs> that's pretty cool i mean i you don't see that too much when you do your kind of forensics of what happened on the landscape trees tipping over but that particular arch i haven't seen that too often on the landscape so pretty impressive yeah and that that's not something that i i really can plan even <laughs> i couldn't have made that happen if i tried <laughs> yeah yeah that's uh it is cool though but hey you know your client's yeah. benefiting from uh the natural disturbance on, on the landscape and obviously uh well disturbance or otherwise uh and of course you know uh if a deer are using it you know, more power to them so you know today in the podcast i want to get into really your process you kind of have a unique eye and perspective on things that i think will shed light on maybe a forester's approach but 
you know, you're you're a habitat guy, no different from me. We we get into the minutiae and details of coming up with a prescription, giving people options, providing advice to people. So I was a landowner and I bought a piece of property and I brought you in and I said, Tim, tell me what I need to do here. You start with more than likely looking at the forest stand and making an assessment of it. How did I get to the point of having this forest land setting? And and can you kind of like walk me through what the natural evolution of that is? Absolutely. And that's something that's very helpful to understand before you, you jump in with both feet and think about assessing what's there and thinking about a path forward is understanding what we call succession. And when we say succession, it usually means because one suite of species overtakes another and then another suite of species overtakes that suite of species on the same site. So I think it would be good to start with thinking about bare land, let's say whether it's a disturbance we created or a natural one like a fire or flood potentially where we're starting basically at ground zero. Oftentimes, you'll find some of the first vegetation when it's it, there isn't a forest there already to, to occupy the site as you're getting into forbs. And often you're looking at annual forbs, so weeds that are growing up that only survive for, for one season are some of the first to come in recently disturbed sites, especially when you're getting down near bare mineral soil. And thinking about that in terms of whitetail deer, you know, we hear a lot about early succession and sometimes the term gets misused, but early successional plant communities that are heavily into annual weeds. Um, They provide a lot of protein. Um, They're very palatable. And over time, and really just in, you know, what could be a couple of years when we're looking at uh, a recently disturbed site like that, there's a tendency for those annual weeds to be overtaken by perennial weeds that maybe weren't the most competitive, but once they get a little bit of a foothold and they've got a root system to bounce back from next season, they can kind of grow up taller and, and you see a shift from annual to perennial. And there's a tendency on average, those are very good sites to have. There's a tendency on average for those perennial weeds to be less palatable and, and have a little bit less protein than, than that first suite of weeds that, that comes into a site as annual weeds. And from there, you know, other things can start to pioneer in. Um, you know, you leave a field like that for five years, you might see, start to see shrubs. You might start to see some scattered tree saplings coming in. And this is one place where I like to make a point because the phrase early succession is so commonly applied to young forest, which can be very good. But in describing these successional stages, or some people call them seral stages, we went from annual weeds to perennial weeds. And you're at the third successional stage by the time you start to get dominance (laughs) by woody plants. I'll say that I wouldn't call it early successional by the time you're also able to call it forest. But now you're at a stage where there still is plenty of available forage where deer can reach it in those early stages of the forest. And also it could be very good fawning habitat. There's a lot of good cover. You know, so you've got some weeds, you've got some trees and you've got some shrubs Eventually, as you get more trees pioneering in and the trees that pioneered in, they're growing bigger. So they've got larger crowns, making more of a canopy, dropping seed, more trees are filling in. You get to a point where those resources, where the deer can reach them, um, they're starting to get shaded out. And you might see a, a shift in composition, not just in the overstory, but in the understory as plants that are more tolerant of shade 
hang on and plants that are less tolerant of shade sort of fall off. And that's a recurring theme, whether you're looking in the forest or not, you know, when you're picking out what type of clover you're going to want to plant, shade tolerance is very important, especially when we're juxtaposing certain resources like forage, whether it's a food plot or whether we want wild forage. It's like, hey, if we want to juxtapose that in and around the forest, we need to think about how much sunlight is it getting. Um, and I point that out in, in that in that stage where you're start, starting to see the shrub layer sort of fade away from that shade. I find in many places, and I've seen this many times, there's this tendency for our non-native invasive shrubs to tolerate shade and sort of, you know, you get bush honeysuckle and multiflora rose and buckthorn hanging on as you see your dogwood and nannyberry and high bush cranberry and things like that are, are disappearing for, for want of sunlight. Tim, um, just real quick, you talked about shade tolerant and shade intolerant trees. Can you give a description of those? Sure. And this this is something that foresters tend to speak a lot about in, in regards to trees, but it does apply to, to other species. It, and it is uh, sort of a spectrum, of, although we do categorize trees as either shade tolerant, shade intermediate, or shade intolerant. A shade intolerant tree will die more rapidly in shade or, you know, in competition from other trees compared to a shade tolerant tree. And there is a trade-off, although I don't fully understand the mechanism inside the tree. There is a tendency for the trees which are most intolerant of shade to be fastest growing and oftentimes reaching those upper canopy positions very rapidly and so you might be walking through a northern hardwood stands and you've got a mix of red maple and sugar maple and yellow birch and black cherry and black cherry is fast growing and very intolerant of shade you walk through and it's you see a couple cherry sticks that didn't really make it up to the main canopy and they're dead dead as a doornail even though they're right next to a maple tree of the same size that's doing just fine and then the cherry trees that did survive they're sticking up over top of the maple trees that survived and they've got larger diameters because they got that full sunlight above the rest of those tree crowns and started growing rapidly. So it's sort of a different ecological strategy. But whether we're looking at a tending treatment or a regeneration treatment, we are often thinking about how trees or whatever we're looking to grow will will tolerate shade. That said, shade tolerance doesn't mean shade loving necessarily. And what I I mean in that is that a shade tolerant tree will still grow best in full sunlight. So if you have an established crop of maple, you can release it to the full sunlight and they'll do just fine. There's just a tendency in conditions with more light for species which are less tolerant of shade and tend to be faster growing to become the dominant species. If say in a regeneration treatment, we cut harder and that has a big impact on species composition going forward when you've got a mix of different species in the canopy or locally how heavily you cut the forest if you're looking at a regeneration treatment and getting new seedlings in is going to affect which of those seedlings are actually going to be competitive and make it up into the overstory great description and well-defined and you added a twist to it especially with the shade intolerance or shade tolerant trees and the loving and not loving i love it and thanks for describing that because i i think a lot of people get into this categorization of well this tree meets this qualification therefore it will survive well in these conditions where 
those trees that are able to survive in shade do just as well, obviously, in, in open settings. So that's a great point to make and, and good selection of species and description there. All right, let me take down the road of being kind of, we're, we're going from that young forest, maybe until that middle age forest to that mature older forest. And we've got these differences as time goes on. And Obviously, in that sequence of events, we have dominance and co-dominance, and we have some species fall off because, obviously, some grow better than others, particularly pertaining to the, the site selection, the slope aspect, all those type of things that play into it. And, of course, available some. We just, we just mentioned that, of course, with aspect. But as we get into the process of me buying a piece of property that started to mature, that has you know, 50, 60, 80, 90-year-old trees on the landscape, and now I want to make a change. I want to make a big change. And I want to design it for, or I want to set it up for deer hunting specifically. And I want to build habitat in here as the number one thing. And then I design my hunting around that habitat. And you as a forester are thinking about multiple facets of, of what you need to do. We talked a little bit about prescription maybe in the past. And we started to hit on it here. You're thinking about the regenerative aspects of portions of the property you're thinking about long-term, don't leaving it a complete mess and disorganized and, and just disrupted by just chaos that, that happens sometimes when people go in and they just start hinge cutting and dropping trees yeah. because this is the specific location deer didn't need to be at. So I want to kind of go through the process with you, and I know we're probably going to get into a client example at the end of this, but let's jump into, I bought a piece of property. Tim, what do I do? I've got older age forest, maple beach, you know, whatever the case may be, what, what do I do next? Help me through this. Sure. And if I could just cap off our, uh, the, where we were headed, as far as describing the, the succession of the forest, because we kind of left it at young forest and it gets at your question a bit. Once you've got a site that has progressed and it's young forest and it's officially forest and it's, you know, becoming fully occupied by trees, even then you might see a shift in composition where what we call pioneer hardwoods might be taken over by later successional hardwoods. And there's something that continues from there that arguably may or may not be part of the same successional stage because we typically define successional stage by species composition, but something happens much later on in the forest as you know, we went from ground zero all the way up where your trees get older and older and in an unmanaged setting, they would begin to die and some would die sooner than others. And they would tip over and fall and create a gap. And we call that stage gap phase replacement. But what you end up on the tail end of the, you know, life cycle, if I can use that phrase of a forest, is that as those gaps are created from really old trees falling over, new seedlings develop in those gaps. And then those start to grow up and they're just, you know, maybe they're getting into large saplings and then it happens over there and a new patch of seedlings are, are established. And so toward toward the, the older end of the, the cycle of a forest, you get into what is naturally uneven age, where you've got within a, a stand or a management unit that we're considering, you've got seedlings, you've got saplings, you've got pole timber, and you've got lot, you know, saw timber sized trees, which aren't just different in size, but represent different age classes. Because of the history here in New York and in Pennsylvania and much of the Eastern seaboard, um, where most of the forest we're looking at today used to be farmland that was abandoned, we're looking at largely forests that are at a stage of being what we call even age. So they didn't reach that part where they're really old and you're starting to get gap phase replacement and you're starting to get different age classes mixed together. 
And that can be really important because in an even age setting, you've got trees of different species. Um, They're similar age, but different canopy positions that maybe got different amounts of light when you're looking to thin. And in that scenario, if you cut your big trees, you're releasing, you're not releasing young, healthy, vigorous trees that are smaller because they were established later. You'd be, you know, in a certain sense, releasing your worst trees. A lot of the places we work now because of the history, it's almost uncommon for me to find a truly uneven age stand. We're usually into that older, even age stand phase. And and sometimes depending on how recently agricultural land was abandoned, sometimes we're on the cusp of, you know, those pioneer hardwoods take being, you know, taken over by later successional hardwoods. So in terms of looking at the property and seeing what's there and where we're going next, it's a good idea to get a baseline on a small enough property. Sometimes it's a, you know, less than a day's walk of really getting an idea what's there. Other times on bigger properties and with more ambitious landowners where we're really developing a plan, I go into the field and I'm actually taking, putting in sampling plots and taking measurements on trees and and saying, what percent cover do I have of different species? So I can come back to the office having inventoried an area and grouped off a management unit and, and ask myself questions, really query the computer to say, how many trees per acre do I have? How many square feet of basal area, which is a forester's way of saying, how much space is taken up by trees of overall of a given species of a given quality that I decided to to make as a a data field in the computer. It it starts with an inventory or on a small enough property, simple enough just to walk through and you want to establish what's there. You want to look at what you can do to to make a change and, and there's a desired future condition associated with that. So a big thing you could do if you're not a forester and you're looking at how you're going to manage your land is grab a field guide and make sure you, as much as possible, just try and learn a few more plants every year so you know what you're looking at. So that when you go and you, you do a cut and you release something, you know that it's something good and not that you're buying trouble by releasing some type of plant that's not going to be good for your management strategy. So, Tim, when we jump in and you, you've you laid a little bit on here where we talked about uneven age stands and, and I promote uneven age stands across the landscapes when I'm designing. But you walked into this discussion of even age and across the Northeast, traditionally, I've seen that you know completely intertwined with almost all the properties that I'm, I'm working with. So you also introduced the gap phase, whereas a tree dies, it opens up space. And as, as that happens, you know, you'll get that flush on growth, those early plant communities developing in that little gap because of the canopy opening. And then you also introduced the pole saw timber discussion. And we talked a little bit about that previously between you and I, where, you know, there's a, a size of tree and that distinguishable size categorize it into this class. What I want to understand from you is you walk into this even age stand and, and the even age stand is going to have multiple size trees, multiple composition of trees. Okay, where do we go from there? Because I get confused, right? As, as a landowner, I'm confused. I don't know what to do, Tim. Walk me through the process. I want to take some of these out because I want to build, you know, some, some deer habitat. And I've, I've, you're, you're explaining this uneven age stand to me or even age stand to me. And we're, we're assuming we have an even age stand here. What do we do next? Because we want to harvest some trees. We want to get some stuff out of here. We want to start creating gaps in the canopy. What do we do next? Sure. So I will say the most underutilized prescription is just leave it alone. And that's very common, at least on a portion of the property. I almost always find an area for improvement, but there are those areas that I say, 
it's not broken. Don't fix it. So always consider that a potential alternative. I look at other things like how crowded the forest is, and we touched on that in our last conversation where we were looking at forest stand improvement as far as doing a treatment that is not about getting regeneration or new trees established, but about working with the existing cohort and making sure that trees that you deem as crop trees are getting sufficient light. And then a sort of a a smaller or temporary allowance of sunlight to the ground level is a byproduct of that, but certainly not nearly to the degree that it would be if it was a regeneration treatment where we're doing a more aggressive, heavy cut. But to your question about where to go from there, very commonly, I come back with some options and consult with the landowner as far as their objectives and what what that person would like to see on the property. And even with something in mind specific to habitat or even specific to whitetail deer, there are sometimes options. So I know at one point you and you and I had discussed a property that I was working on. I wrote a forest management plan. So part of that, I came in and I did an inventory where I did sampling to, to take my tree measurements, figure out what the species composition was, average tree sizes, and also some plots to put in and say, how much cover do I have in, in shrubs of different species? Because there were some invasive plants. And basically, I knew if I was going to cut the overstory, I wanted to kill the invasive shrubs first, in part because there were a lot of desirable shrubs that were still hanging on that could, could get that release. Um, but in that case, we were looking at a, a stand that had red oak and quaking aspen. And so it was sort of on the cusp of a pioneer hardwood stand, Aspen you would categorize with pioneer hardwoods. They're some of the first trees to move on to a site that's recently disturbed or abandoned agricultural land. They get there before the oak do. And so there was this oak. A lot of it was what we call pole timber, which is really about diameter class. So think like six inches or bigger, but smaller than 12 inches, um, you know, in that size class where not only do they have the potential to produce acorns, but those were potential crop trees as far as, as timber goes. And so I had a discussion with those landowners uh, who, who had a, a habitat-based set of values. And I said, you know, there are some options here that are justifiable. What many foresters might have recommended and probably closer to what I would have been taught in school is cut the aspen trees where they interfere with the crowns of oaks and then tend that crop forward so that you're in a sense accelerating succession instead of waiting for that aspen tree to die and then the oak gets a little bit of a release, you're accelerating the process. And even sooner you would get increased diameter growth rates, you would get increased acorn production. The other option I floated them because there was aspen and aspen coppices very well, which coppicing means to sprout from a stump or from the root system. In the case of aspen, they can sprout not just from the stump, but from the roots. So if treated appropriately, you can get a lot of cover in just a few years by doing some fairly heavy cutting in aspen. And it was kind of, (laughs) do you want to go this way or do you want to go that way? Do you want to move forward on that successional spectrum or do you want to take a step back? And we had a discussion about, well, what if we cut the aspen, but we save enough oak for a crop? And I said, well, aspen is shade intolerant. They grow very fast. But if you do what a forester might have traditionally done and thinned the aspen out and left a fully stocked stand with oak, you're not going to get thousands of stems per acre springing up out of the root system. There just isn't enough sunlight for that. And I point that out because 
in one instance, I did have a landowner whose forester had thinned out the aspen in the past, and it wasn't the wrong thing to do, but the landowner did think that that cover was also coming and the shade conditions just weren't there. And so this second option of doing a heavy density cut, basically doing a clear cut and cutting almost every oak tree, every aspen tree, set it back so that, okay, well, you've kind of sacrificed a lot of the acorn production. We did save groups of oaks, but you've sacrificed some acorn production and you've sacrificed, which for many people, even managing a deer property, the fact that those were timber crop trees is significant. But part of the reason we did that, and this is this is another part that goes into planning and I, I feel is crucial in addition to the inventory, is taking a look around the larger landscape and saying, is there a lot of one thing and little of something else? What's missing? And on both their property and the whole surrounding area, there were a lot of saw timber sized oak stands and pole timber sized oak stands where I didn't feel really that the acorn production was was limiting. Acorn production typically won't be limiting for deer, uh, although it might be attractive. But in this case, we talked it through and, you know, they decided to sort of sacrifice that investment that was already had in the oak by doing a heavy density cut, basically a clear cut um, to get those aspen shoots to spring up. So we did the herbicide treatment to kill invasive plants. And they're going through with this heavy density cut where any native shrubs were leaving and they can get full sunlight. And, uh, Here's another important part of it is that it's planned for the dormant season. I have seen aspen stands that were cut in summer and they coppice just fine and you could barely walk through them and you kick up deer and you kick up the same deer five minutes later because instead of running a mile away, there's so much cover that they they feel comfortable just staying pretty darn close to you. No, that that's a great point, Tim. I mean, you're walking into this setting and, and you're giving the landowner options. They've got... They've already got in place mass-producing trees. You're giving an opportunity to release those. You're also giving an opportunity to recycle and think, okay, well, we've already got this across the landscapes. Let's focus on something that isn't present. And as a result of that, like you're saying, when you're cutting a lot of these species and giving them an opportunity to redevelop, and coppicing aspen I think is a great option, and it even improves the deer habitat because it becomes a food and a cover source. And another thing to just add to that conversation is continue to go back and manipulating that aspen and cutting it over time. What I recommend on client properties, if we have large aspen cuts, um, I'll cut it in phases. And every, oh, we'll say three, four, seven years, I'll make cut an adjacent area so it gets back into or it replicates a stage that we just had of, of a current aspen stand that, that currently is starting to develop. And that stand, when it hits five, six, seven years, it still is phenomenal cover, but it starts to slowly sure. get out of reach of, of kind of the deer's mouth, and it doesn't become a food source as often as you might hope it to be. So you could go back and recut that area if, if need be. So you've got kind of sure. some options with, with, with that particular species. So great point with the coppicing and, and laying out that across yeah. the landscape. Absolutely. Like what you just said about doing it in blocks, especially if you're coming in and you've got the Aspen and they're, you know, they're still only six, 10, 12 inches in diameter where they've got a future ahead of them absolutely going from one place to, to the next and cutting in blocks and maybe giving it 10 years before you consider cutting it again is a good way to maintain it without having to do it all at once. There's one exception there. And, and that would be in some of these stands that you're really getting toward the tail end of later successional species like maple or oak 
taking over your Aspen and the Aspen are starting to die out in the, the overstory, it may make more sense to coppice 40 acres once and not let those Aspen die off. And then once you got that, that big explosion of Aspen shoots and cover coming up and now 10, 15 years later, it's not offering that cover, then you can take it in 10 acre blocks <laughs> and do a rotation like that. So sometimes uh, if your Aspen are getting up there in age, it might make sense to do more now just to keep them healthy and vigorous. So over the past couple of years, I've worked this particular concept and I love extending it, making it larger, establishing it, and then making decision to, to cut in blocks, et cetera. Um, I've worked with clients where they've actually seeded Aspen. They've cut roots, done root cuttings. There's a lot of options for, for Aspen uh, developing. Sure. It, it, it has a intertwined root system and it, it tends to extend itself, assuming it has the right conditions. So if you have a really dry site and you happen to have Aspen established there, its development's going to be a little bit different from wet sites. And by the way, I've worked on a client property where we created uh, disbanding streams that actually support those particular tree species that are already established, uh, similar to what you'd have in a beaver style system where a beaver comes in and he's developing his habitat and he's extending his waterways and i was doing the same thing extending waterways into those systems because i've seen that on the landscape and i want to replicate it and and create this biome or opportunity to have moist ground and that allows that plant to really kind of extend itself so another kind of interesting concept that's probably a little bit different maybe a secret right that we uh we're willing to share um but let's definitely like let's dive into a client property and you talked about one of the concepts, uh, desired future outcome, and you want to see a stand become something. I walked in, I've got this even age stand, and I want it to become something more than, than it currently is, and I'm picking the right trees to select out. We gave a couple examples of oak and aspen in the last, but I've, I've got to make a decision, and I'm working in topography, and I'm relying on you as, as the lead forester to Give me some recommendations. Let's go through a client visit you had and let's explain, you know, boots on the ground. You went from, you know, making your, evaluating your stocking levels, evaluating your species composition across that landscape and starting to make the decisions from, okay, we're going to harvest this section. We're going to create an even age cut or cut, clear cut an area to develop an even age stand eventually. How do we get into that process? Like start selecting this out for me or identifying the, the best route to go. Sure. Well, a really important question we get into in those cases and often where we've already agreed something should happen here. The forest looks crowded. Maybe we want to do a thinning. Maybe we want to do a thinning and tie in some quarter acre or half acre patch cuts to get raspberries springing back in. A big question is, how's it going to be paid for? Is it going to pay its way out of the woods, right? Is it a commercial timber sale? That one I was telling you that happens to be ongoing, that they're just finishing up today, that that's like a clear cut. That was a lot of tree cutting and some value trees. And that one ended up being a break even where, um, and, you know, as a forester, I wouldn't let a logger take, you know, $20,000 worth of timber and just run with it. Sometimes you can do a heavy density cut and you should be getting paid for it. Um, but in that case, looking at the value of the wood, the value of the, the, the work that had to be done there it was basically a break even job. And then, you know, our last discussion, our last podcast, we talked about forest stand improvement and how that phrase is generally applied to pre-commercial or non-commercial work that has to happen at a cost. The cool part about that is if I've done an inventory 
let's say a forest management plan. And I did that inventory like we were discussing to figure out how many trees per acre do I have of a species and how big are they? And based on that, how much space do they take up? I'm gathering that data to come up with information about the structure of the forest as far as how, how stems of different sizes interact with one another and the composition as far as the species and, and how those species provide value to deer. But if I'm doing that inventory and I also take a little bit of extra information about the quality of the tree relative to what forest product, product it could be and then the merchantable height of that tree, I get to exploit a lot of the same data I use to make a recommendation to say, how much wood is there of different qualities and what is the likely stumpage value and be able to say, hey, we can do this improvement and you're going to make more than $10,000. Or we might be able to do this improvement, but we would have to get somebody to take, if I want to mark all of the junk trees, essentially, as far as a forest products perspective might go, if I want to mark a lot of trees that don't have value, is there enough in the trees of value that I also want to cut to carry them out of the woods? Or is the whole thing going to have to be done out of pocket or through some other revenue source like a timber sale elsewhere on the property? So that is always an important part of the discussion is money <laughs> because to make, you know, to, to when you go from, Hey, this is a cool idea to we made this change and the habitat's going to develop over the next few years making people show up with machinery and chainsaws to do it is, is it going to be a federal program? Is it going to be out of pocket? Will the wood pay for the whole project? Or can we actually, in some cases, do this at a significant profit in addition to choosing the trees that we want to keep, right? I tell people when they say, how do you choose a tree to cut? You know, to some degree, of course, you know, you've got to look at products. And sometimes I'm looking at trees that I know might be expected to die from a disease. But the strategy is mainly to pick the trees to keep and then cut the other trees that don't fit within that vision. Um, and that's how you get at that desired future condition is walking through the woods and picturing the trees that would remain, not the ones that you would take out. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's a great bit of advice. And that leads you down the path of being able to make decisions because it's not necessarily the trees you're intending to harvest at least immediately for future gain. It may be the trees that you're wanting to harvest in this case to kind of create that desired future condition for an ultimate goal of getting those later growing trees and kind of a crop stage, et cetera, where you're going to recoup some larger values. So it's thinking short-term, long-term, and then a combination of, hey, this location here is going to be an excellent resource for me down the road because I've done all this pre-commercial thinning and I've got these trees that are going to be available. And by the way, that might be an access area when you're designing your hunting property because the stand as it states may not be as attractive. I'm working with a client right now and tomorrow I got to run over to a property because he's gotten in a pickle. He's in the plan. He's going through the process. He's actually harvesting the trees and he's got some major questions and he's in the middle of just cutting everything. And this is mud season. So anybody that's cutting now, uh, best of luck to yep. you. This is the hardest time of year to be hauling trees out. But anyhow, so he's going in and he said to me, he goes, all right, we selected all these trees. They need to come up and mark and help me make some decisions. How are we going to approach this? And a lot of times when I'm designing a hunting property, I'm thinking about where the deer want to be that I'm working off that. So if you're working off that piece of it versus Tim's suggestion is you're working into 
the future value or a desired future condition where you're going to have some value, you're kind of balancing these two scenarios. I like to start to where the deer want to be and I work off that point. I want to kind of design those features into my ultimate plan. And that's what I got to do tomorrow is I'm working off those desired locations. I'm marking trees for him. And then we're kind of working through pathways and, and design features where he's going to reap the benefit of the style of cutting I'm going to recommend, but he's not going to totally destroy the forest by taking every single tree out of there and just having this massive clear cut. That to me sure. is just overly destructive, beyond destructive. But you've kind of balanced this in your in your uh, forte. You've kind of got this kind of balancing scheme going on with clients where you know these location deer may want to be at. Um, enhance that per se, but you don't want to distract the ultimate goal of kind of maybe the money side of this equation, which is really important for a lot of people because we've got to pay taxes and everyone has bills and and that land probably wasn't free. So, you know, there's got to be sure. some recoupment on your investment. So have you had client issues or client discussions where you've kind of walked through that particular issue? And, and again, maybe they're more focused on deer habitat. And as you went to that location, you said, let's reshape this plan a little bit where we want deer to co-locate here because maybe there isn't the value that we originally anticipated as I look at this in a finer light. Sure. Um, those are always things to have to balance. I guess my way of doing it is I don't recommend treatments which will damage the productive capacity of the land, in my opinion. What what that might mean, I guess to get into a quick definition, because you mentioned clear cutting. Clear cutting can mean almost too many different things, anywhere from a forester using it as a regeneration treatment with the intention of establishing new trees to deforestation. And in between, some people use the phrase commercial clear cutting, which really more refers to taking all the trees of value and leaving the rest behind, which does have a a damaging impact on not only what your growing stock is that's left behind and how those trees will accrue value, but the genetics as far as the next generation when you've taken the, the best out. And so that's the type of thing that I don't typically get into. In other cases, as far as sustainability goes in deer habitat, if you get into a property with a lot of invasive species that have been there long established for a very long time and you've got seed in the seed bed and those invasive species are providing cover, there's no reason to beat your head against the wall and go and try and, you know, spray it multiple times and look at you know, uh, pre-emergent herbicides. Sometimes it's the hand you're dealt. But when I look at an area that, say, has some native shrubs hanging on and has native trees that can be coppiced and I've got invasive species, If it's feasible to really shift the composition to something native, that's usually what I'm going to recommend is control the invasive species. And as far as making some money and and, and I, it can be really attractive when you see a number is like, Hey, there's this much value in your timber. Let's take a third of it. I could understand some people looking and saying, wow, looking at that big number. And that might even be a case where I say, well, you know, there's a compromise where these trees are capable of producing seeds. So maybe we do a much heavier cut and save some of the trees that are of good quality as a seed source. Hey, if we want to remove more material to make more money, maybe we can do that by cutting more heavily. And in that other scenario where we were discussing having aspen and oak and having the options of thinning out aspen or clear cutting, uh, in that case, different use of clear cut to to coppice the aspen. Uh, There are foresters who are traditionally trained that would be like, oh, Tim, you're nuts. You cut those 10, 11 inch oak trees that could have grown into saw timber. But I look at it and I say, we killed the 
the non-native invasive species. We released native species. We regenerated native species. And in the long run, that land will continue to support deer and a timber crop. And in my opinion, that doesn't have a damaging effect on the land's ability to produce and provide those values. Yeah, I think the idea of having the production aspect of that in your back of your mind every time you walk into a property and not so focused on the return piece of it, you know, taking a third or thinking about production over time is definitely a fair way to do it. It it tempers the aesthetic issue that may come about if you have, as your example, a clear-cut scenario where it's more of on the destructive side where you're taking the best and leaving the worst. Uh, I think that, to me, is not a good practice. Even on my own property, I did my own marking, right? I went through my own philosophy, and I balanced all these things of recouping value, keeping an aesthetic and long-term production benefit. And I was just in there the other day, and I, I cut a huge volume of trees based on my circumstance. And I was going and do, doing uh, pre-commercial thinning activities because I know in the next eight to 10 years, I'm going to do another cutting in a section. And I've got a long-term plan for that. And I'm thinking ahead. And and I know uh, roughly, hopefully the market stays where it is and hopefully it grows maybe. You know, that that will be a better investment for me long-term. And I'm, I'm thinking about those things as, as I kind of go about. But let's say you get into kind of a nitty-gritty where maybe you don't have you know, too many you know non-native plants, and you don't really have an area that's pr- productive. It, it may have been mismanaged over the years, and you walk into it and say, "Well, you know, there isn't the the right type of species in here that that will give me that production value." And I want to dedicate this area to deer habitat per se. What would you recommend in a, a scenario like that from a a cutting standpoint? Uh, how do you how do you manage manage that with with weighing all these different things that we just talked about? If I come into a stand that is degraded and not particularly productive, and in the scenario you floated me, it really doesn't have interfering vegetation, you pick the best scattered few trees and you cut it real heavy and you let those few scattered trees be your, your seed source. And in the meantime, you'll have blackberry and raspberry springing up. And that'll be the kind of place where deer go in bed. And um, if it's a big enough area, you won't be able to scare them out of it. They'll run away and they'll stay in that same 10 or 15 acres if it's that if it's that big um, because they feel that they can run a short distance and hide and be safe instead of just running and running through the open woods and the fields. So I mean, that's a pretty common rehabilitation strategy from either a habitat or a forest product standpoint is if the site is just, and I don't mean the site in terms of the inherent capacity of the soil, but if that stand is just unproductive because of insect or disease, or as you put it, it could have been mistreated in the past, start over. And often, you know, those heavily cut areas and to anyone considering it, I'll caution you this, it really doesn't look pretty, especially the first time you've seen one, but those really heavily cut areas that, that just shoot back up with brambles and saplings and shrubs, you know, that's a great way to rehabilitate a site from a forestry product perspective and ecological perspective apart from deer, but then also for a property that you're managing for deer. (laughs) Just do be aware, if you do one of these cuts where you're just saving the best and cutting the rest, and sometimes what you're cutting is junk, and that's why it was left behind in the past, if you've got an opportunity to see a property where it's been done, and sometimes like they did one on the state forest not far from my, my property, there are definitely some folks unaccustomed to that that would say, that doesn't look pretty like the forest did when it started. 
but I look at it and I know I'm like in the next five years, there's going to be deer and grouse and woodcock and all sorts of stuff in there. And keeping in mind, if it wasn't touched by human hands and it was being regenerated naturally by a microburst just blasting down a stand of trees, it would also look ugly like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. And this rehabilitation concept, it's something that I think people should think about a little bit where, you know, it may not provide any value. I see a lot of that across the landscape and, and you're making those decisions to leave those trees to provide maybe an outcome that, that may benefit your deer, but also consider planning those scenarios. Because if you're introducing species that you prefer or the deer prefer, for an example, that may speed up the process. You may have to protect those particular plants, but introducing species, I just did a cut like this on my own property where I removed actually some wolf trees, some non-desirable plants, and I introduced plants that I wanted to be in there because I want to create this better bottomland riparian area that's going to provide you know many benefits to salamanders like just the whole ecosystem smz's that like flow throughout the properties that have great soil the fertility is really high can be such a resource and i really wanted to open up an area like that so i'm introducing plants in those locations and working kind of with the natural vegetation you can step back and gauge what eventually comes up in those areas before you make those decisions so sometimes give it a couple years you know weed out the plants that you don't want or the the non-native plants and you'll really kind of have this great prescription for deer habitat Uh, as a result of just kind of micromanaging a small section. And by the way, copy and paste. Take that example and apply it to another area because you might have a similar outcome, and that was kind of the desired future condition that we were hoping for in that location. So just kind of a a great example. So, Tim, let's kind of like round this out. Anything you want to add? You've you've kind of dropped knowledge here, and I I love it, man. You're you're smart. You're analytical. That's that's why you're on this. Anything you want to add to the discussion? Because because I think you've you've kind of kind of laid out this this full stream example. You've gave some really specific recommendations. You've you've given some some examples of what you've done to client properties, and and we kind of work through like what do I do? How do I start? Where do I go? And you've given examples of picking purposeful production trees and and looking at like species that may be long term advantaging you, and then thinking about the example I just gave of adding some trees into that equation for, for future benefits. So anything you want to add to the conversation? I guess to cap it off, I would circle back to learn your property and learn as many plants as you can. And if each, and even myself every year plants that it's almost like they didn't used to exist. The more plants I learn, the more I notice. like, how come I've never seen that before? So learn your plants And once you have an idea of your property, what's growing there and how those plants function, it basically comes down to managing interfering vegetation, managing deer, basically using quality deer management. So you've got a deer herd appropriate for what the habitat can support so that you're not trying to grow plants that are just getting mowed down and you never really create that quality habitat. Once you control interfering plants and you've got a reasonable size deer herd, you've controlled deer, then you're basically just managing light levels and you could create light conditions to grow anything we want to grow so long as it's reasonably site appropriate at that point. If we can control things that we don't want to grow and sometimes that's a, a first round of let's get rid of those things first and see if things we like spring up naturally once they're gone or whether we want to plant. If you can control your interfering plants and you're using good quality deer management to manage your herd, it's all about just manipulating different levels of light and we can grow what you want to grow. 
Yeah, and you get to that stage, you're kind of in the home run scenario, and and hopefully everybody can get to that point in in their their hunting career and on their hunting property, and 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 that's the ultimate goal. So thanks for ending on that. Hey, everybody who follows us, please give me a five star review. We we uh, we pitched that in the last podcast. I want to see people doing that. A lot of people are downloading this podcast. I'm actually not surprised, but I'm I'm pleasantly happy with with the outcome and the interest. Tim, thanks for being on. I can't wait to have you on again. Sure, we'll have some great, you know, great conversations going forward. So thanks for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me again, John. We'll see ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.